1: Hello and welcome to the Rule of podcast brought to you by Matrix in partnership with Prospect Magazine. I'm Richard Perma, here with my colleagues Ellen Mountfield and Murray Hunt. Well, we often start these podcasts by describing how the topic under discussion often a proposed bit of legislation, risks eroding the reputation of the United Kingdom as a country which cherishes the rule of law and upholds standards of decency in public life. Each time we sought to reassure ourselves that surely, surely it could get no worse. The departure of Boris Johnson, we hoped, signalled a return to integrity in public life. The departure of Suella Brotherman as Home Secretary, twice, might be, we wished, a move away from signalling cruelty as a virtue in politics. And the ascension of Rishi Sunak might, we hope, mark the resumption of integrity in government with renewed respect for the rule of law, including, of course, international law. But yet, but yet, we record this podcast in the days before the House of Commons returns to consider the safety of Rwanda Bill which first arrived hours after the United Kingdom had signed a new treaty with Rwanda to accept individuals whose refugee applications the United Kingdom refuses to process itself. And all of this done, we remember, expressly to circumvent the landmark decision of the Supreme Court from last November, declaring the previous scheme unlawful. Now, the aim of the podcast is twofold. Firstly, we want to describe the legislative process and policy process that got us here. But then, perhaps more importantly, and perhaps more interestingly, to examine the implications of the current bill, assuming it's shortly to become an act, from the rule of law perspective. And spoiler alert, the implications are both shocking and deeply profound. Now, before we turn to the substance, I wanna say something at the outset about language. The debate around immigration and asylum in this country is toxic. And that includes the language that's employed by politicians and journalists. And we, the three of us, are acutely conscious that slogans such as stop the boats, control our borders, so on and so on, are capable not only of being distracting, but also to humanizing. They mask what is often the huge suffering of our fellow human beings caught up in this system. Very many of those individuals will be highly vulnerable and desperate. Almost all of them by definition would have knowingly risked life and limb to escape their home countries in the, in the, in the, to seek to travel here. And unsurprisingly, the human rights lawyers concerned about the rule of law all of our discussions today should be taken and is acknowledging that we're talking about the lives of fellow human beings whose essential dignity must be acknowledged. So let's start with an outline, Helen Murray, of the sort of slightly mind-spinning um, last few months. Um, Helen, in March of last year, um, I had a discussion on this podcast with Raza Hussain, of Matrix and also Sheila Reynolds from Freedom of Torture. And we were talking at that stage about what was a bill, the illegal migration bill. It's now an act. Um, Am I correct in understanding that what that does is that it prohibits the grant of asylum to anybody who seeks to enter the country other than with pre-clearance from um, immigration and who doesn't arrive other than by effectively an airplane?
2: Well, yes, in short, that is that is that is precisely what the Act means. Um, it means that somebody who leaves their home country, no matter how compelling the circumstances um, f- which make them a refugee or um, the m- routes which are available to them, if they arrive in this country um, without having first claimed asylum or having first claimed asylum, but having traveled through another country that is deemed safe, then they can never be regarded as a refugee in this country. That is and Rother
1: the... and Sheila both explained how that then Bill Now Act uh, was impossible to reconcile with international law obligations, not least under the Refugee Convention. It then gave rise to the issue as to, well, what, if you're not granting asylum, uh, uh, what do we do with individuals um, who seek to claim it here? And Murray, does that help us understand the Rwanda policy or some of the context of the Rwanda policy?
0: Yes, I think, I think it does, Richard. And to, to pick up your point about the incompatibility with the Refugee Convention, uh, that was why the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR, said that the effectively the Illegal Migration Act is effectively to extinguish the right to apply for asylum in the UK if you've arrived here irregularly. Uh, they were quite unequivocal um, about the impact of the Act. So that that Act itself um, is itself clearly incompatible with our obligations under the Refugee Convention. So, yes, to go to your question, what do you do then um, if these people who arrive irregularly are not able to apply for asylum here and have their individual circumstances considered and determined here in the UK, uh, you remove them? Um, And that's where the Rwanda policy comes in Uh, the policy is to remove them to Rwanda, first of all, to detain them, um, and then to remove them to Rwanda, um, and for their asylum applications to be determined in Rwanda, um, which is actually commonly referred to in the media as as offshoring. It's actually um, actually not offshoring. Uh, It's much worse than offshoring. Um, Offshoring means where a country arranges for asylum applications to be determined outside of its country. But then if successful... Refugees are then admitted to that country uh, and recognised as refugees. Um, In this case, the UK's policy is to remove to Rwanda uh, for their application for asylum to be determined in Rwanda. And if successful, they remain in Rwanda. They don't come back to the UK. So it's subcontracting all the obligations in the Convention to another country. Now, they sought to do this originally,
1: not through a formal treaty with Rwanda in combination with an Act of Parliament, but rather by... The introduction of a policy and a memorandum of understanding which is not a legally binding international document and it's it's the it's the policy that is then challenged in the courts that leads up to the uh, landmark decision of the supreme court last november um helen can we just trace out the kind of the the process, as it this wound itself through the courts, it starts off, doesn't it, before the divisional court, which is a first instance court, but it's it's a high court judge and a and a, and a court of appeal judge sitting together. The challenge comes before them, and uh, on the issue of principle before court before the court, it's unsuccessful. Is that right? And, and and why?
2: Yes. So the the argument was that the the legal basis for the Rwanda policy was set out in the immigration rules, and those rules said that if someone had come in um, and had an opportunity to claim asylum in a safe third country but failed to do so, um, then they could be removed from the UK to any other safe third country um, that was prepared to accept them. Now, what is a safe third country? Um, That depends on the principle which is called non-refoulement, and that principle means that um, an asylum seeker can't be uh, returned, either directly or indirectly, to A country where their life or freedom would be threatened on account of their race, religion, nationality, membership of a particular social group or opinion, or somewhere where they might be at real risk of of torture or inhuman um, and degrading treatment. So that's the principle. The divisional court said that the policy was lawful in principle, but the ways in which the policy had been implemented in individual cases was procedurally flawed and those decisions needed to be reconsidered. And they also refused to give any interim. Relief, which meant that um, the the people whose cases were under challenge could still have been removed to Rwanda while an appeal was heard. Now, that then went to the European Court of Human Rights, and the Human Rights Court gave what are called interim measures and said that they couldn't be removed pending the hearing of an appeal. The case then went to the court of appeal and then the supreme court and both the court of appeal and supreme court said that they weren't quite clear what test the divisional court had been applying when considering whether this policy was lawful but actually it wasn't for the decision maker it it wasn't for the court to second guess the decision maker the court had to decide for itself was this policy lawful and they decided that it wasn't and they
1: set out a whole series of detailed reasons on evidence, having considered the evidence, as to why they considered there was a risk of, uh, 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 you described this principle yep. of refoulement. why well, that risk did arise on the evidence.
2: Yes. And the other thing that's really important is that they emphasise how broad the legal basis for that principle of non refoulement is. It doesn't just come from Article 3 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which is part of our law as a result of the Human Rights Act, it also comes from the Refugee Convention and principles of customary international law. So in a sense, it wouldn't matter if we withdrew from the um, Human Rights Convention tomorrow, so far as this is concerned, you would still act unlawfully if you sent someone back to a place where they were at direct risk of harm or indirect risk of harm by being um, bumped back to somewhere else.
1: Yeah, and just so we've got the context and people kind of understand the context of, Uh, reform on. I mean, international lawyers have this terrible habit of using jargon, but this is a, uh, as you've set out, this is a principle that this country has historically championed. Yes. Uh, both in and of itself, and both when we're promoting, as you have said, the Refugee Convention, the European Convention, the Convention Against Torture. Uh, um. These are things to which we have been proud um, proponents and supporters of for, for decades.
2: Yes. And now um, what government policy appears to be is that we should depart from that by a treaty, even if it's against, in effect, international common law, because we 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 just want to deem Rwanda safe. And so we will. That's what Parliament can do.
1: Murray, can I ask you a little about the Supreme Court judgment and whether or not there's actually anything from a legal perspective that's remarkable about it or it's just simply the restatement of pretty traditional legal principles?
0: It is ultimately uh, an application of some fairly straightforward legal principles, but I think it is remarkable uh, for a number of reasons, Richard. Significantly, this was a unanimous decision of a Supreme Court which has been widely criticised for being far too deferential to the executive in a wide range of different contexts. Um, and the clarity of the decision in this case is really very striking. Its clarity about the importance of the core international principle of non-reformal is very powerfully and cogently set out. It very carefully makes clear, as Helen has said, uh, that this is a principle um, which finds expression in many different legal forms, in many different international obligations that the UK is subject to, uh, and has also been brought into our law in various ways through various statutory references and various references in um, statutory instruments and so on. So it makes very clear that this is a, a generally applicable, important international law principle, which we've domesticated in this country over many years. Um, so this is not just um, a case of an interfering foreign court, the European Court of Human Rights, requiring our system to fall into line. So I think it's hugely significant from that point of view. And I think the hint that the principle is is probably also recognised as part of customary international law um, is also part of that overall significance. This is, this is one of the most central principles of international law that's at stake in this litigation. Um, and finally, the other thing I think, which is I haven't heard much commented upon, but which is quite significant about the Supreme Court's decision, is it shows how important it is that the Strasbourg court gave the interim measures that it gave. Uh, because had they not done that, by this by this time, some of those people on the first round of flight might already have been returned to their countries and to face torture, persecution or worse. Because as Helena said, the divisional court itself refused
1: to effectively stop the jets. And it took an application to Strasbourg to um, prevent what otherwise might have been as you say, really, really grave outcomes. Yeah. The Then there's then this kind of, I suppose, entirely predictable backlash from, uh, again, pretty predictable sectors of society to the Supreme Court judgment. But, I mean, are we to take some solace with the fact that in the government itself, we didn't have a repeat of enemies of the people blaming the judges, seeking to undermine the legitimacy of their decision? I mean, it... Or is that just a sign of the times that we're trying to find some? We we see that as a virtue that the government is atta- isn't attacking the judges.
2: I suppose so. It's a pretty low bar, isn't it? You say, yeah. "Hooray, the judges! The, the government doesn't attack the judges."
1: But we still have, though, don't we? This extraordinary thing that seems to have you know hit the headlines for about fifteen minutes. We have Lee Anderson, who is a deputy chair of the Conservative Party, um, publicly calling for the government to ignore the judgment of the Supreme Court and put people on airplanes uh, in violation of the law. I mean, am I just kind of alone in thinking the world's gone slightly mad that um, that it seems to be acceptable to the government to have these people screaming from the right because it helps them keep right wing voters, but at the same time calling for things that are just simply unimaginable, aren't they?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think the split that's emerging is a little bit like the split in the Republican Party. Um, between those who have conservative political views and those who think that having been elected, they they should push those views through, even if the law says you can't do it. Um, and that that is their conception of what democracy is. It is a very extraordinary split, I think. I'm going
0: to turn now, if I may, to the, the... I'm sorry, Murray, you're going to come in. I was just going to say, Richard, I think you're right that um, we should be grateful for small mercies and at least the government itself um, didn't come out swinging at the courts immediately after the judgment of the Supreme Court. But I think we have now got a a different mischief to deal with, um, which is the assertion, the frequent assertion that what the government is doing is completely compatible with international law, at the same time as removing all the mechanisms for independent courts to determine that question. Uh, So I think we're now into a, a different mischief that we're dealing with. Well, that's what I want to come to Murray, because I want to turn now to the kind of the, the government's actual response,
1: which has been a a twofold, one to uh, enter into a treaty this time with Rwanda, and then shortly off the back of that to introduce the um, bill um, into parliament that's coming up next week. So, I, I mean, I'm going to summarise the treaty. You tell me if I've got it wrong. And then we're going to just turn to the bill itself. So what the treaty effectively does is to try and enshrine protections to meet some of the concerns of the Supreme Court. So that there is an agreement now that, firstly, Rwanda will give the same rights to anybody whose claim is dealt with there, uh, whether they're deemed ultimately to be somebody with a legitimate claim um, for asylum or not. They're all going to have the same rights and they cannot be removed from Rwanda at all, other than being returned to this country. And then there's also, in terms of process and due process, provisions to uh, ensure that there is a properly trained uh, administration uh, with judicial oversight for dealing um, with um, asylum claims uh, and that there is independent monitoring of it. So on its face, this is being proclaimed by the government as providing legally binding obligations on Rwanda to ensure that the risk of reform can be uh, uh, um, uh, um, satisfactorily dealt with. So, I hope that's a kind of a broad and roughly fair interpretation of what it's doing. But I want to focus on, because it's the more constitutionally interesting point, is the bill. And what the bill is seeking to do in light of that treaty and in light of the Supreme Court judgment. So, Murray, can you just give a kind of a broad overview before we come to their kind of constitutional significance? Just a broad overview
0: of what this bill is seeking to do. Sure. So in outline, it's a very brief bill. Um, The central operative provision is Clause 2, which purports to make, introduce a a conclusive deeming provision um, that Rwanda... Um, is safe. Um, And this conclusive deeming provision applies to all decision makers, not just executive immigration decision makers, the Secretary of State and immigration officials, but also to courts and tribunals. Uh, So courts and tribunals are required by clause two, to treat Rwanda um, as safe. Uh, Then it includes also a very sweeping notwithstanding clause, that this exclusive deeming provision applies notwithstanding all the relevant legal sources which enshrine the principle of non reform which we were discussing just now. That's the most important provision of the Bill, Clause 2. Clause 3 then elaborates on the notwithstanding clause in relation to the Human Rights Act by disapplying in specific ways most of the significant provisions of the Human Rights Act, um, apart from Sections 4 and 10, the Declaration of Incompatibility uh, provision um, and the power of a minister to remedy after a Declaration of Incompatibility. So most of the Human Rights Act is disapplied by Clause 3. Clause 4 includes a very narrow exception um, to the conclusive deeming provision to enable claims to be made and to be heard by courts and tribunals by individuals who say that in their particular circumstances, um, Rwanda would not be a safe country um, because of the risk uh, that they would face in Rwanda itself, not a risk of onward reform from, from Rwanda. So there's a particular individual circumstances, very, very narrow exception for those who say that they're going to be ill-treated in Rwanda itself. Uh, to, so to that extent, the conclusive deeming provision is qualified, but it's a very, very narrow uh, qualification. And then finally, the, the, the most other significant provision is in clause five, um, which attempts to make interim measures from the Strasbourg court non-binding by directing courts that they must not have regards to interim measures. And by giving a discretion to ministers to decide and and for them to be the exclusive decision makers who can decide uh, whether or not they're going to comply with interim measures. So in future, whether the UK should comply with a, an interim order from the Strasbourg Court that a, a, a flight to Rwanda should not take off, that will be a matter for the ministers to decide whether or not to comply with it. Those, I think, are the most important provisions. So quite a few things to unpack there. But can I just kind of start
1: off by picking up what you just said a moment ago, Murray, about the extent to which this bill, not least seen in light of the history we've been discussing, the extent to this bill is compatible with our international law obligations, because we're told the Attorney General and the law officers consider that this bill is compatible with our international law obligations. Um, Is it?
0: In my view, it's clearly not. In a number of different respects, it's on its face incompatible with a number of different obligations, including ECHR obligations. Um, It is slightly puzzling that the Human Rights Memorandum says that in relation to all the relevant clauses, uh, the government is satisfied that it's it's convention compatible. Um, and yet it bears a Section 191 b statement on its face. So in other words, the statement by the minister is that he can't be confident that this is actually compatible with Convention rights. But we've got no explanation in any of the explanatory material, including the Human Rights Memorandum, um, as to why that is.
1: Yes, and at some stage, someone's going to have to, in the government, explain why um, a bill that disapplies the Human Rights Act on its face is compatible with it. But can we just break down for a second some of the international law obligations that you say this bill is incompatible with? Can you just give us perhaps some of the starkest examples?
0: So, I think most starkly, it's incompatible with the principle of non reform on because it will lead to removals to Rwanda where people are at risk of non reform on for all the reasons that the Supreme Court has detailed um, in its recent judgment. Um, so, the principle of non reform on principally um, and all the related manifestations of that principle, Article 2 and Article 3 of the ECHR, um, all of those will be breached. Um, by the provisions of this bill, if the conclusive deeming provision um, is applied by the courts.
1: So let's just be clear what this looks like in real terms. And Helen, tell me if i uh, if I've got this wrong. You can have a situation. Let's assume this this bill becomes law. You can have a situation which, as a matter of fact of reality, if we are sending people to Rwanda, they will be at risk of torture either within Rwanda or because Rwanda, in reality, as a matter of fact, will, contrary to the treaty obligations, send them off to third countries, uh, back to their home countries where they will be tortured. And that's not fanciful because that's on the evidence, what the Supreme Court says is the position at the moment. But am I right then that on the bill, even though that will be in fact the factual situation, a court is required to ignore that? and to apply a factual situation that is untrue namely that it is safe because the bill requires judges to conclude conclusively and not get inquire or go behind uh, that Rwanda is safe even if it's not
2: yes i'm afraid that is the situation so if um you know, even if even if the government's whose argument is Following the implementation of the treaty, it will be safe. So the Supreme Court was looking at the decision, the situation before the treaty. The treaty makes it safe. But supposing something then changes. Supposing they're right on that. But something then changes. Still, no one can challenge that situation in court. They can say there's something about their own particular situation in Rwanda which might enable the court to see whether they're um, unsafe there. But not whether the situation in Rwanda is unsafe altogether for people like that, or not that in fact they are not. Are now at a risk of refoulement. the court is by statute prevented from considering those factual questions
1: which would automatically place us in breach of our obligations uh under the refugee convention under the torture convention yes
2: under the, of the european convention as well so yes, yes. Richard- um,
0: so um, what, what would normally happen, of course, I mean, the treaty itself obviously is relevant to the safety question, yeah. uh, as is the implementation of that treaty. Um, but that should be a question for the courts to decide um, as to whether or not the what's in the treaty. The treaty is in a piece of paper, on a piece of paper. And that it's nothing more than that. Um, when these questions would come before courts, they should not be precluded from answering the, the, the safety question by having regard to the facts on the ground including the extent to which the new treaty is being implemented in practice um, and that's that seems to me that's the bare minimum which our international obligations require and which the rule of law requires um, we have to preserve a judicial role in determining the safety question by reference to the facts and that's just really the, the core minimum obligations that we have
1: can i ask murray about the other kind of constitutional tension that's going on here We've got the Supreme Court that set out in really kind of great detail, building also upon the analysis of the Court of Appeal, the majority of the Court of Appeal, as to why, in fact, Rwanda currently is not it's not a safe country to to, to send people to because of the risk of reform. And then we've now got what appears to be on its face, a counterfactual bit of legislation. What are the insights? What are the reflections? that you would have a one that says about our kind of the relationship between courts and parliament under our kind of unwritten constitution what's is this abnormal is this actually been done before where are
0: we for me it really does cross a line I think it crosses a line into legislative usurpation of the judicial function Um and it really goes against all our Um, traditions, which of course are um, Apache um, at best, but of comity between the branches, respect for the essence of the functions of each of the other branches. And by doing this, the government is inviting Parliament to essentially take a step which ought to be the essence of the judicial function in relation to these cases. So for me, I think it's really significant in terms of our particular understanding of the separation of powers in the UK. We don't have a rigid separation of powers doctrine, but what we do have is a history of respecting the essence of the functions of each of the branches. Um, and I think by putting this legislation before Parliament, government, the government is asking Parliament to be complicit in taking away the essence of the judicial function. Helen, what's your take?
2: Well, I think I think that's entirely right. And I think the, <clears throat> the point that Murray's made about there not being a very pure doctrine about separation of functions means, for example, that one of the arguments that's been made is uh, EU countries were deemed safe. under previous legislation but in fact the courts did disapply that in relation to countries where at particular periods in time people were not safe on the facts and they used article three of the European Convention on Human Rights to disapply what would otherwise have been that deeming provision and here um, this isn't the quite normal use of a deeming provision please presume x Um, it is saying this is the case even if it's quite clearly isn't on the facts, and the court may not interfere with that and it's doing that in the face of a very recent Supreme Court judgment that says in a very detailed way and for very detailed and specific reasons why Rwanda is not safe. And that this is something that might change in future but is not likely to change um, imminently given the multiplicity of reasons they say it isn't safe which are a lot of them about institutional capacity and um, and, and, and cultural resources and all sorts of other things. So once they've said that, and parliament says don't care you must say it's safe you really are crossing a constitutional line as murray says in quite a dangerous way which i think then legitimizes the 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 leandersons of this world and makes it seem really quite moderate to say uh well we, we we're doing our best to comply with international law even if in in certainly in murray's view i think and mine this can't possibly be seen as compatible with international law
1: I asked then about the uh, one other aspect of the bill that I think, Murray, you've already touched on, which is interim measures. And Helen, you've described effectively how in in, in the proceedings we've had to date, the fact that Strasbourg intervened um, with an order, uh, um, an interim measures order, may well have saved some people's lives in this case. The bill seeks to change the uh, approach, the reception of interim measures from Strasbourg. Uh, And there's an argument, Murray, that I think you've addressed in other forums that's raised as to whether or not it's a legal requirement here to comply with interim measure orders from Strasbourg. Um, And does this, um, is there anything controversial in what's being proposed here? Does it set us up in conflict with the Strasbourg court Uh, what's going on?
0: Yes, I think this is another provision, uh, Richard, which is on its face incompatible with the Convention. Uh, Clause 5, insofar as it directs courts to disregard interim measures from Strasbourg and gives ministers a power to decide whether or not to comply with them, um, when that power is exercised, uh, will be a straightforward breach of Article 34 of the Convention, which is the right of individual petition. The case law from Strasbourg couldn't be clearer. There are many examples of interim measures being ignored um, and the court then finds a breach of Article 34. So it's a straightforward case. Um, and it's a, in my view, it's a, an incompatibility on the face of the bill, because as soon as the minister exercises that discretion to not comply, uh, say, for example, by allowing a flight to Rwanda to take off, notwithstanding new interim measures, uh, that's a breach of the convention. So it's very, very damaging in terms of our relationship with the Strasbourg court. But possibly even more significantly, Um, It's incredibly damaging to the court itself and its authority in the overall system for the protection of human rights in Europe. Um, We all know the countries who will be rushing to invoke the UK's argument um, to do the same thing in relation to interim measures. And we're simply giving succour to those countries which will be rubbing their hands with glee at the UK thumbing its nose at the Strasbourg court in this way.
1: Can I just kind of draw back and look at some of the politics of this? i mean has been pretty well documented at best where this this scheme even if operates as well as intended is going to deal with a couple of hundred people a year and it's costing tens into the hundreds of millions of pounds um why is the government persisting here what's What's in it for them? Is it just because they're beholden to um, a, 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 a small but powerful wing of the party? Is it because they feel they've got to pull through on this and to have credibility at the next election? Is it a real belief of Rishi Sunak that this is the right thing to do? What's what, What's your take, Helen?
2: Well, yes, I do think it's a party management issue, except that, as I said a bit earlier, this is something that isn't just happening in this country. It does seem to be uh, an international thing um, that right-wing parties are splitting along the lines that conservative social policy ought to be pushed through whether or not there are breaches of international norms. And that doesn't matter anymore. It seems to be an executive power project, as I think a phrase I've used before, it seems to be about saying, all that democracy requires is that you get elected. And I do think that's very constitutionally dangerous. And I don't think it is just in this country, but it certainly is an issue here at the moment.
1: I mean, it's reflected in part and something I've never seen, certainly in a bill, which is a clause in clause uh, in clause one, stating that Parliament is sovereign, which is a bit like saying, it, you know, when the sun comes up, it gets light. But Murray, what's your take?
0: Robert Buckland, um, one of his interesting amendments is to leave out the whole of Clause One, which he re- which he refers to as superfluous fluff, um, and I think Clause One Four is particularly um, superfluous fluff. <laughs> um, there's a lot of legislative cloaks that, uh, throat clearing um, going on in Clause One. I think probably Richard, it's a it's symptomatic of the late stage of the Parliament and the and the government, um, and I think primarily it is a party management um, uh, explanation for, to, to your question. Um, It's hard to believe that this Prime Minister is very passionate about this particular policy. Um, The Supreme Court uh, judgment gave a rational, sensible government a way back from the brink on this policy. Um, But the arithmetic in the Commons makes it difficult. Um, So I think probably that's the the, the explanation. But the sad thing is that um, the extent to which all our institutions are prepared to go along with this assertion that this bill is compatible with international obligations, is, is the casualty. As surprised
1: that, that... as I was, I mean, I have to say the current attorney general is someone who lots of people in the legal profession have great admiration for, Victoria Prentice. I mean, she's has a long history as a very serious and respected lawyer. Uh, were you surprised that she's decided that she wants to keep her post?
0: I think the arguments for the bill being compatible with the convention are extremely technical. Um, let's the the the, the Article Thirty Four argument we were just referring to about interim judgments um, depends on there being a discretion in the minister to decide whether or not um, the the thing is uh, interim me- complying with interim measures um, should be done, um, and the fact that a discretion is given to the minister seems for the Attorney General to rescue the bill from facial incompatibility. Um, I think that's not personally a respectable legal argument, but the threshold in the Attorney General's guidance to legal um, advisors for government um, is now so low because it was amended by um, Suela Bribman, when she was Attorney General, that a respectable legal argument um, is the threshold for advising um, whether or not, advising ministers, whether or not a course of action or a policy um, is unlawful.
1: Rather than whether or not it is unlawful or isn't unlawful.
0: Uh, or what the prospects are of of it being successfully challenged in court. So uh, a legal advisor might think there's an 85% chance of this losing in court. But if they think there's a respectable legal argument, which could be made in the court, that doesn't mean that they should advise the minister that it's unlawful. And I think that's one of the really problematic um, positions we've ended up with uh, through this this most recent period. That's a podcast in its
1: own right. Helen, is this bill going to go through, do you think? enough support on the Tory benches to see it through?
2: You you need a political pundit, not me, but they do have the numbers, don't they? And they do seem determined to do it. I think it rather depends because I think if, I mean, I think it will, but I suppose the numbers might might get to a point where if the right of the Tory party demanded um, further changes, which the One Nation wing of the Tory party felt tipped it beyond this very, very delicate fulcrum of, um respectably arguable uh, legality um, then it may may have a tension where both sides are saying i can't agree to any move i can't agree to it as it is um it's hard to see where the government would go with that but
1: well let, let's see how it plays out on any view it's um it's a pretty depressing spectacle that this is even before parliament um in the first place we'll come back to it in future episodes um but for now uh helen and murray thanks very much indeed
0: Thank you.